Romans chapter 3. We'll um, hastily uh, wrap this up with a study of those texts. Let me begin reading at verse... Well, let me uh, begin reading in the middle of verse 10. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll start at verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have become, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb with their tongues. They have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's probably not good planning on my part to leave us uh, uh, over the summer at the end of verse 20, because very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, that's, that is an end of a section. And it is a section in which the end result is nothing but despair. That is, the conclusion of that argument is there is no flesh that is going to be justified in his sight. Um, and then, of course, this... Um, uh, the gospel is introduced in verse 21, a new section. It's kind of unfortunate the way that the, the, the book was broken up into chapters, but it was, and, and we'll deal with that. So, um, uh, But don't despair. There's great news, but we won't get to it until the fall. Um, we ended up with verse 11, and we'll resume tonight at verse 12. Uh, I said to you that, um, that what you have in verses 10 and 11 is basically a description of, uh, of a man outside of Christ in terms of who he is. In verse 12, it begins to describe what he does. And I said to you last week as we closed, that uh, being always precedes doing. That is, what I am always precedes what I'm, what I, uh, my acts and my deeds and my choices. So here you have in verse 12, you begin to see some of the choices uh, of people who do not seek after God. That is what um, uh, you find described in verse 11. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And there's a, there's a, a lot I could probably say about the, the individual words. Uh, they turned aside. Uh, I think you know Isaiah 53, 6. We memorized in the evangelism program that says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Well, here we have the statement, they've all turned aside. Yeah, they've all got their own way. They're not on any path that God has outlined. They've got their own. Everybody's got their own uh, way that they think they ought to be walking. And then they have together become unprofitable. The word unprofitable was a really uh, interesting one. I looked it up today. Um, it, it is also used to describe milk that has soured. Uh, they're unprofitable. They're worthless. Uh, they're together become soured milk, uh, which is... Uh, very descriptive, I think. And then, but the one I really wanted to concentrate on is there is none who does good, no, not one. Now, gang, um, there are those who would suggest. Now, wait a minute, Paul. You've gone a little bit too far by that by that statement. I know a lot of non-Christians, and I know a lot of non-Christians who do some pretty blasted good things. Uh, they do cancer research. There are some non-Christians who are doing some wonderful things out there, Paul. You've done. You've gone too far. 
Well, guys, um, the Bible is not denying that. In fact, the Bible makes provisions for that. It is called common grace. That is, um, there are a lot of people who do not profess faith in Christ who make great contributions to the overall welfare of man because of God's common grace. You know the statement in Matthew 5, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Does God only rain on Christian crops? Of course not. He rains on non-Christian crops too. Well, that's because he is a God who extends benevolence to all mankind. And, and um, gang, the fact that a non-Christian can think a cogent, logical, sequential thought is, a, is an evidence of common grace. The Bible is not denying that non-Christians can't do things that are good. But in terms of his standing before God, he is worthless. Um, all of his righteousness, says the book of Isaiah, all of his righteousness is as filthy rags. Um, they look good from one vantage point, but from viewed from heaven, they are considered filthy rags. There is none who does good. There's all kinds of... And, and one of the reasons, folks, that, that the good that the non-Christian man does is... One of the reasons that it's not good is because it is so self-orbiting, self-centered. I think I told you, I've used this again and again. I think it's such a great illustration. I'm on an airplane, I'm flying back from someplace, and I don't have anything to read, which is very much unlike me. I, I always have something to read. I'm a paid reader. Uh, I read all the time. And I didn't have anything to read, or I was, anyway. But this guy next to me, uh, across the aisle, has a USA Today, and he's reading, um, um, you know, just going to town, and I thought, well, at least he could give me a section of that paper, you know, and he could look over and see how, how pitiful I look and uh, offer me some of his paper, but he never did. But anyway, he, he's flipping through the paper, and he got to the back, and there was this ad, and I forget what it was for. Now, you've heard me tell this story before, but um, it, at the top of the page, and in, in full-page ad, it said, Honesty is the best policy. And the bottom of the page, it said, It is also the most profitable. Why does why a non-Christian want to run an honest business? Because it's profitable. You find out he's a crook, you ain't going to take your business there, folks. Now, that makes the... I, I, very frankly, I'm glad he's honest. But in terms of how that is viewed in heaven, it is viewed as self-serving. And therefore, it is a filthy rag. Goodness. Goodness. Real goodness must qualify in two ways. First of all, it must spring from the heart of faith. Number two, it must be demanded by the scriptures. That is, uh, we won't get into that. But um, So, indeed, Paul can say, there is none who does good, no, not one. And then we get some more specifics. And here's where I'd like to, I'd like to point out something here, ladies and gentlemen, and I think you'll see it rather readily. Read with me. Verse 13. Their throat... Verse 13b, their tongues. Verse 13c, their lips. Verse 14, his mouth. Isn't it interesting that when Paul begins to describe the unregenerate man outside of Christ, one of the things that he, that he hones in on is the misuse 
of this cavity. I mean, certainly he's not talking about his throat. He's talking about that which comes out of this orifice. Um, Sin, ladies and gentlemen, often, often first shows up in words and how the tongue is used and how the... Do you remember um, when Isaiah got a glimpse of God in chapter 6? And uh, he saw the temple filled with smoke, and in uh, uh, the year that King Uzziah died, that I saw the Lord lifted up. And what is his first response? What was me? I am a man of unclean lips. The first thing that, that he recognized in terms of his sin was the misuse of his mouth. Boy, guys, there isn't anybody in this room more guilty than I. When, when I start thinking about my sin, I want you to know something. I no longer steal from the church. That's a joke. Uh, I never did steal from the church. I no longer am running around in my life. I never did that either. But when I start thinking of my sin, the thing that immediately comes to my mind is my tongue. Don't you? See, my problem is I'm louder than the rest of you. And so mine gets heard. Did I ever tell you the story about playing basketball in a gym? And there was only about 14 people there. And I let fly an epithet with my mother sitting in the stands. Do you really know what ivory soap tastes like? Guys, the, the, the point I'm making is, do you see how, how emphatic the scripture is about how our mouths reflect things? You know, Jesus, it's, it's, it's Jesus that says, out of the mouth comes things that are on the heart. You know, um... When I'm in a room of non-Christians, if, if, that is, if they know that I'm a clergy, and you get one of two reactions. One of them is, you know, I'm just saying, he's, he's, a, he's a preacher. You know, like I've never heard some of those words before. Um, the other reaction is, uh, I ain't even letting you preacher, you know, messing with me, you know, I'm gonna, I'll show him. You know, some horrible word, you know, they, they, just want, they don't make sure that I hear it. And I, and I want to say, Bubba, let me tell you something. I've heard that word before. I used to use it myself. I, there's not a word that you got in your vocabulary that is so terribly limited that, that I, I didn't use myself. I know that word. And my concern is not about the word. My concern is that it flows from the heart that is wicked. Because the mouth just speaks that which fills the heart. And guys, you can tell a lot about what's filling your heart by what comes flowing out of your mouth. One of the things, in fact, you know, I never said this to Jeff. I meant to, but I forgot. So I'm saying it now, Jeff. <laughs> one of the things that I would love to see, because this is one of the things that we loved about Coral Ridge. When we were in Fort Lauderdale, we'd just become Christians, and 
And, uh, you know, at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, the big thing is lay evangelism. Everybody's supposed to be sharing their faith. In fact, if you're not sharing your faith, you're not considered very spiritual. And um, it's kind of a badge of honor around there. And, and not that I, I mean, it's almost a, I guess you could say, a, well, never mind. Um, but one of the things I love is that you'd walk up and down the halls and people were talking about the people that they had talked to about Christ. Yeah, I talked to my boss the other way, you know, and my neighbor. You know, and you could hear little conversations that were going on frequently. I would love for that to mark our church. I would love for those conversations. And, and very frankly, doesn't it say a lot about what's on the heart of our people when that happens? Well, guys, you need to face. It's not a very pretty portrait. But this, um, this is the description of those who are outside the household of faith. Their tongues, they practice deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And not to say that they are, he curses as much as he can. There's just a lot that comes out of there. Let's move. Um, their feet are swift to shed blood. Not every non-Christian is a murderer, ladies and gentlemen, but you surely will know and agree that, uh, generally speaking, a lot of blood is shed. A lot of blood is shed that um, that whole million mom march is because there's been a lot of blood being shed, you know? It ought not be shed. And that, that's true around the world. But in verse 16, um, w w w verse 16 is almost a nice little summary of human history. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Um, they're a ruin leading to misery. Kind of a cause and effect, you know? destruction that leads to misery. I had a mother call me yesterday and um, really doesn't go to this church and every now and then will show up but she's got a 24 year old son who told her uh, his life is over. 24 years old. Looking, How would you like to hear that as a mother? 24 years old and he says, I don't want to live anymore. Miserable. I mean, that's almost an understatement. He's in misery. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Um, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no peace, says the scriptures, for the wicked. And very frankly, I think that's the thing that all of us want. We want a peaceful job. We want a peaceful marriage. We want a peaceful home. But for the, for the non-Christian, there is no peace. And then what you get in verse 18 is really the cause of all of it. If you want to know the genesis, the, the source, there it is in verse 18 uh, laid out for you. The real explanation for the state of non-Christian man is there is no fear of God before their eyes. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, do you realize that the most frequent description of the non-Christian is that one? He doesn't fear God. Um, this, of course, is a quote from Psalm 36.1. But this is the thing that the Bible uses most frequently to describe those who are outside of Christ. They have no fear of God. And conversely, what is the characteristic that is most frequently used to describe a godly man. He's a God-fearer. He's a man who fears God. In fact, the scripture says that the beginning of wisdom, everything begins 
with the fear of God. Now, let me point out some, and I've preached that before, and I need to preach it again because I, I think that the non-Christian or the Christian church has been told has been sold a bill of goods because they've been told that they weren't, weren't supposed to fear this God. Well, let me tell you, the Lord Jesus says you are. Do you want me to show you that? It's um, uh, in Luke chapter 15 when he says, um, uh, "Do not fear the man who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill body and soul and sin." You know, he, and Jesus says, "Go fear him." Uh, Peter says, "Fear him." But what does it mean, ladies and gentlemen? What is the fear of God anyway? First of all, may I say hurriedly, it is not dread. Uh, it is not anxiety. Um, I, I'll say this. If you want to know, I, here's, a, here's a nice step in the right direction. It's the same thing I want for my children. But let me give you a definition of the fear of God, which I think is just... I mean, it's just hard to miss it. Turn, if you can, real quickly to the book of Proverbs, because the, the book of Proverbs defines it three or four times so clearly, so simply, so simplistically that you can't miss it. Proverbs chapter 8. Is this easy enough for you? I mean, this is, this is pretty simple. Verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. It's called a predicate nominative, ladies and gentlemen. That is two things that are equated by the verb to be. And you see the verb to be is, there on one side is the fear of the Lord, and the other side is to hate evil. Uh, you want to see it again? Same, same statement. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to improve on that one. That's pretty simple. Chapter 16 of the book of Proverbs. Um, chapter 16, verse 6. By the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Let me just show you one more. It's in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 16. A wise man fears and departs from evil. Here's what the fear of God is, ladies and gentlemen. The fear of God is an attitude. It's a mindset. It's a way that I view God such that it prompts me to depart from evil. I view God in such a way that evil repulses me, and I would not dream of committing it. And so you can see how apt a, a, a description that is of a non-Christian man. He loves evil. He finds his fun in it. He can't wait to go do some more of it. Because, but the fear of God is a, is a way of viewing who God is that, that engenders within me the desire to depart from evil. Um... Well, that's, that's the description that I think summarizes it all, folks. That's the thing that Paul says is the source of all this other. He has no fear of God before his eyes. Now, let's, let's look at verses 19. I've got 14 minutes left, and, and I, I want to spend some time, particularly verse 19. Now, we know, very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, Paul has come to the end of his argument. He, in his own mind, has proved what he set out to prove. Okay, now, now, as a result of listening to my argument, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. That was Paul's intention in the very first, that the whole world would become guilty before God. That was what he's been trying to prove for a chapter and a half. 
that, no, actually, uh, a chapter in two halves of a chapter, so two full chapters. He's been trying to prove that the whole world, Jew and Gentile, all of us, are guilty before God. Um, now that we know that whatever the law says, and I think when he uses the term law, he's referring to the whole of the Old Testament, because that's what he's just quoted in verses 11 through 18, that this whole Old Testament says who are under the law, which he says um, uh, in, uh, where do you find that, um, uh, that we were all under the law. Um, He says that what is said by the law to all of us, it's supposed to have an impact. There is supposed to be a a result of the law speaking to us the way it, it has spoken to us. Here it is, that every mouth should be stopped. Ladies and gentlemen, why has Paul gone to such great extremes to prove that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the wrath of God? Well, one of the reasons that he's gone to such extremes is so that every mouth would be stopped. He wants to see a hand put over every mouth that is eager and seeking to defend itself. He wants to bring to a halt any of this vain verbiage that because I'm this, because I'm that, because I've done this, because I've done the other. He wants us to be rendered speechless as a result of his argument. Do you remember... Do you remember the story about the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, Well, um, you know the law. Don't commit adultery, don't steal, da 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 And the man says, Oh, but Jesus, I have kept all of that from my youth up. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, his mouth has never been stopped. In the, in the end, the rich young ruler walks away, as you know. But how is it that the scriptures have silenced vain attempts to justify himself? Man's vain attempts to justify himself. It is then that the way that we are, our mouths are stopped is by getting a good glimpse as to who this God really is. Gang, have you stopped talking? Have you ever been silenced before God? Has your understanding of who he is and what he stands for finally shut you up? As offensive as that might sound. And the language is Paul's. He wants to see mouths stopped. He wants us finally to come to the place where we understand who this God is and who we are as his creatures that we would never dream of entering his presence with any kind of idle boast.
He wants us to come to the place where we wouldn't dream of making any attempt at self-justification. And that's what the non-Christian does all the time, ladies and gentlemen. His mouth has never been stopped. He, he, he's oh so willing to tell you why it is that God should be pleased to allow him into God's heaven. He's got a long list of reasons as to why God should permit that. And the only man who can do that is the man who has never seen this God. Let's go back to Isaiah. I'll tell you what, let's, let's look at that real quick and, and then we'll quit. Turn to, find Isaiah 6. Isaiah's after the Psalms, it's after Proverbs. This, ladies and gentlemen, is probably one of, this is a, this is a big chapter right here, Isaiah 6. You ought you to know this one. Uh, or, but let me, let me begin reading verse, verse 1, and we're almost finished here. Um, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled, with, filled the temple. Now, what the, what the author of Isaiah, what Isaiah does is, he gives you the historical locale. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, uh, I'm, in the, I'm in the temple, and I get a vision of the Lord high and lifted up in his train of his robe filling the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. You know, you got these, um, uh, these, these seraphim. They got six wings. The two covered his face. Two is covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Oh no. Woe is me. For I am undone. Now guys, what brings people there? What brings them to the place where they finally shut up? It's a vision of that God. I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There is a consciousness that there is such a wickedness and uncleanness about him. How did he get there? Because he saw God. And it's interesting, and I'll shut up, but in verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongue, and he touched my mouth with it. The very point and location of his conviction is the place where God came and said, I'm going to cleanse that for you. Gang, what I'm saying is, once you get a glimpse of that God, we're not eager to boast about what good people we are. When we get a glimpse of that God, the only thing that is, um, the only thing that we sense is how different we are from him. Paul says, that, ladies and gentlemen, is a preamble to the gospel. I said this to you this last week, but guys, after he brings people there, then he will begin, in September, he will begin 
with announcing the marvelous provisions that God had made for people like us. Ladies and gentlemen, may I say, this is not a pretty picture, but it's the description of all of us outside of Christ. That's who we were, and if we're outside of Christ, still are. That's it, right there. And Paul thinks this is the way that men must be dealt with before we announce to them the righteousness of God uh, as revealed in Christ Jesus. Um, one, other, one other word, and I'll, and I'll quit. Um, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. And that word that's translated guilty, I don't know whether in your translation it might be accountable. It's an interesting word. It's called a hapax legomena. That's just a, a Latin phrase which means it only appears one time in the Bible, right there. No other place does it appear, right there. Uh, the word that's translated guilty. That is that Paul wants everybody, wants us all to understand, Jew and Gentile, we're all guilty before God. The word um, is properly translated, I think, accountable or liable before God. It's a forensic term that means that we're all liable before God. That, ladies and gentlemen, makes men eager to hear what we have to say next. And what do we have to say next? We get to declare a gospel that sets men free from that. Um, one of my concerns in, in 20th century evangelicalism is that um, we are in a hurry to get to verse 21 before men have understood that, number one, they're guilty and accountable before God, that the mouth has been shut, and now we can tell them about the beautiful Savior. That's Paul's method, and I think one that uh, that you commend yourself to us. Let's quit. Our Father, uh, we do thank you and love your word. We love the... Uh, the, uh, the frankness, the honesty with which it deals with us. And I pray, Father, that you will not let us miss the, um, the way that the Bible addresses us. We want to, uh, to benefit from its message and not miss any of its truth. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear, O oh God. And I, and I pray that all of us might be able to look back on the, on the time when we finally realized that our mouth was stopped and that, that we were to have any hope at all, it was going to be found not in us, but in Christ Jesus the Savior. Oh, Father, for those of us who know that Savior, this is a glorious gospel. Now dismiss us with a sense of your ownership, Father. We want to know that we are yours and you are ours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.